Welcome to the River Life Podcast. As you listen, we pray that you will encounter Jesus and allow His words to wash you anew. May He reveal more of who He is to your heart. Here's the message for this week. We really thank God for what He has done uh, over the 21 days. And uh, I know a lot of us have been touched. A lot of us, God has done a really wonderful uh, work in our lives during the 21 days. And I think our prayer is that God will not just sustain the work, but God will continue to increase that work in your life so that you'll continue to grow more in the Lord. All right? Yep. So today, uh, we're, we're starting part two of our series, In the Wake of Awakening. And I will try and finish this in 15 minutes. Okay? By the way, uh, this week was uh, Pastor's Appreciation Week. And uh, we're anticipating all the belated wishes they're going to give us to thank us for all our hard work and all that that'll be coming in. You're all right, Pastor Joachim, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I see so many of my pastor friends, wow, wow, they got so many wishes and all that. And then I look at our church, wow, they must be still thinking. God's got so many things to thank for. So maybe this week we'll receive a lot. No, just kidding. Why did I go there? Okay, anyway, <laughs> we're doing a new series called In the Wake of Awakening. And uh, one of the heart of the series, why we're doing part two, is because we realize that um, uh, as God does a work in our lives, you realize that the moment God touches someone, the enemy will come. And he's going to want to try to pull you down. He wants to try to bring you to where you were or worse still further down to where you were not before. So as we go through this series, we want to learn from, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, from some characters, how do we sustain God's work in our life? How do we sustain something that God has done in our, work, in our life and in fact go even higher, grow deeper with the Lord from that place? In, in other words, how do we live in a new normal such that our life is characterized by victory, is characterized by growth? and not by defeat. Okay, and that's the heart of the series. That's why it's called In the Wake of Awakening. Yeah? And uh, yeah, so how do we sustain God's work awakening in our lives and live life in a new normal? See, we'll look at some examples in the Old Testament, but for today, we're going to look at a woman. Okay? And the whole pulpit team decided that the best person to represent, to talk about woman is... Yeah, and uh, we're going to look at the story of Hannah. And uh, um, just to give you a short introduction, um, for me, um, women have played a very big role in my life. Of course, I was born from a woman, right? Yeah, I married a woman. Yeah, and actually, a lot of my early influences for preaching, because when you started preaching, you need some models to follow, right? They were actually all women, right? And some of my favorite theologians are also women, so women play a very big role in the church as well as in society and in the world. And today we want to look particularly at this story of Hannah and what can we learn from her story in order to, to preserve and also to grow further in what God is doing in our lives. All right? So can I just say a quick word of prayer and then we'll start the message. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we want to come before you once again. Uh, we come to your word because your word is life. Your word is light, teaching us how to walk, teaching us how to sustain what you have done in our lives, Lord. So today, even as we read the story of Hannah, Father, I pray that it will not just be my words, but Father, that it will be a word that is spoken in season from everyone that is sitting here, Lord. Lord, may your Holy Spirit speak to our hearts and take these words, take deep root in our lives this day, O oh Father, so that we can grow into the likeness of Christ, O oh Lord. So Lord, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of us say, Amen. So I have six points today. <laughs> okay? And I'm going to do it in 15 minutes. Okay, so if you have a Bible with you, can you turn to, ha- um, Hannah, to 1 Samuel chapter 1? Okay? To 1 Samuel chapter 1. And uh, the first point is the setting. What was the setting of the book of Hannah? Sorry, am I feedbacking a bit? Uh? It sounds a bit boomy. Yeah. Okay, the setting. 
Okay, so let's look at the setting, the spiritual climate of the nation of Israel during the time of Hannah. Okay, so during the time of Hannah, it was actually two generations after Moses. So what has happened is that they've conquered the promised land. They've conquered Canaan by Joshua and they've distributed the land to all the various tribes uh, in, in Israel. Okay, and through that period, God provided judges to lead the people even in all their inheritance in the place where they were settling. God provided judges. And after, uh, after the time of Moses, when they entered into the land, the tabernacle resided, or the Ark of the Covenant resided in this place called Shiloh. Okay, it's a hilly place. Basically, it means uh, an elevated space. Okay? If you look at it, it's actually a very beautiful area. It's very um, hilly, not mountainous, but hilly. Okay? And in one of those hills, there was erected the tabernacle of the Lord. So every year, all the tribes will come down. Um, they'll come down and then they will worship and they'll pay their tribute at the tabernacle at Shiloh. All right? And after the time of Joshua, one generation down, you come to the time of Hannah. What did Israel look like during the time of Hannah? It can actually be summarized in this verse in Judges 17 verse 6. And I'm going to read it to you. It says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It sounds a little bit like today, where every one of us, in, even in the whole world, we do what we think is right. And a lot of times, we don't go back to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? How we are to live. Rather, we use our own experience, we use our intellect, we see what everyone else is doing, and we follow likewise. But God has already given us instructions on how to live in this world. And this was the situation in the days of Hannah. Just a short extraction from the commentary that I was using. It says this, that the Israelite society during the time of Hannah had become ethically pluralistic. Means they adopt different types of ethics, different types of moralities from the various nations. Because remember, the Israelites did not drive out all the inhabitants of the land and they lived with them. And as a result, there was a pollution of culture, pollution of morality. Okay, and everyone was doing whatever seemed right in his or her opinion. Without righteous leadership, the nation was perilously close to ruin. Right? It is in this setting that the story of Hannah begins in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And I want to bring you there. Okay? So, let's meet the family of Hannah. Okay? Let's go to verse 1 to verse 2. And it says this, There was a certain man of Ramatim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Joroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and an Ephratite. Okay? Wow, all these all this names sounds a bit like the Yong Tao Fu, okay? But anyway, <laughs> verse 2, <clears throat> he had two wives, two wives, okay? The name of the first one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina, okay? And remember this, it's a different day, it's a different culture, and Elkanah had two wives. It's unimaginable for us today, right? But in those days, it was pretty normal, okay? Elkanah was the husband, Okay, and the first wife is Hannah. And in the Hebrew, it's actually pronounced as, as Hannah. Okay, Hannah. Okay, because when the, 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 the mother gave birth, okay, and the, 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 the baby girl came out, and then the husband came and asked, is it a girl? And then the wife said, Hannah, Hannah, Hannah. So her name is Hannah. Okay? <laughs> okay, first wife, Hannah. And the name Hannah actually means favored one. Okay, this is important to remember for later, okay? The name Hannah means favored one. The one that has received grace. The one that has received grace. And the second wife is called Penina. And it's very interesting. Her name actually means coral, as in the sea corals, okay? But most, most, um, most likely, what it means is that she had beautiful hair, okay? So, Elkanah saw she got beautiful hair and married her as second wife. And the, one of the possible reasons why he married a second wife was because the first wife was barren. 
Okay, but we'll come to that in a little while. So, point number two, what is the situation here? What is the situation? Let's look at the situation. Uh, verse 1b, And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Okay, that's the situation. Verse 3, Now this man used to go up every year, year by year, from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, through the, though the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 6, And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her, and therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And verse 8, And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not worth to you more than ten sons? More than ten sons. If you were Hannah, what would happen? In the words of Uncle Roger, you'll be emotional damage, right? Okay. So the problem here is this. Panina had children. Hannah was barren. Okay. So that is the problem here. And barrenness is actually a very big thing in ancient Israel. Now you must understand it was a different time and it was a different culture. Okay, so you cannot look at this story and think 21st century type of family, type of marriage. It is a very different setting. Okay, and I want to bring you very quickly to understand a little bit about the ancient culture, the ancient family culture. Okay, what the family unit means. Now, the basic family unit in ancient Israel is called the Be'af. Okay, it actually means the father's house. The father's house. And this basic family unit consists of the father, which is the patriarch of the house, okay? The wife or wives are married children, the married children, the sons and their wives, any concubines the patriarch may have, the servants, laborers, slaves, foreigners, all these constitute the family unit. So it's not like how we see family today, their family is a lot bigger, okay, and up to about 20 people. Now, to understand about the ancient um, culture, sorry, the ancient definition of family in, the, in ancient Israel, I need to introduce to you three very, very chim words, okay? Do you think you can? Can, uh? okay, because you're all from Singapore, from Malaysia. If I can, miss you can, okay? <clears throat> Yeah, okay. Three words, okay? I'm going to introduce to you, okay? Patriarchal, patrilineal, and patrilocal. You all understand, right? Okay, no need to explain. Okay, <laughs> number one, patriarchal means this. The whole society is centered around, the whole family unit is centered around the oldest male in the family. The oldest male has the ultimate authority within the family. That's why it's called Patriarchal, patriarch, the oldest male in the family. He's the one that's responsible for the economic well-being of the whole family, uh, not just present, but the past, present, and future. The patriarch is responsible to make sure this family can survive. And the patriarch is the one that enforces God's law within the family. And he's responsible to protect the whole family and any one of his kinsmen's that is marginalized or affected by death of poverty or war. So that's the role of the patriarch. So if you look at uh, the next slide, you will see this diagram there. You will see that in the ancient Israel, in ancient Israel, this is what it looks like. You have the patriarch and his family. And in Israel, there's a lot of patriarchs and families. And within a group, it is called a clan of the same type of people, and they intermarry, they keep things close within the family. And then out of that, you have the tribe. And out of that, you have the different tribes becomes a nation. 
This is how society is structured in those days. Very different from 21st century Singapore, where we go by households, by individuals. It's very, very different in those days. Okay? So patriarchal, the oldest male in the house is the most important. It's the ultimate authority. Second term, patrilineal, it has to do with inheritance. It has to do with resources. It means that whatever resources, inheritance that you have, you keep it within the clan. You don't bring it outside. Remember, in their inheritance is not in DBS that I hope is working by today. Okay? <clears throat> it's not in DBS. It's not in the bank. Their inheritance is in terms of your flock. It's in terms of your crops. It's in terms of your water wells. These are the things that keep the family going because it's about survival. So the patriarch is responsible to make sure that the next generation and this generation has access to all these things. So he formed alliances through marriages, okay, with other tribes, with other uh, uh, fellow clan uh, members, and they intermarry because the goal is to form alliances so that we can have shared resources, we can combine our water wells, we can combine our crops, and both families can benefit. Okay? And, the, and it's very interesting. To be connected to family in those days is everything. It's your survival. Because if you're not connected to a family, you lose access to all these things that can keep you alive. And that's why the Bible in the, in the, Bible, in the book of um, Deuteronomy says to take care of the widows and the orphans. Why? Because they have no access to all these resources. Isn't God amazing? He looks after those that are forsaken, even in the Old Testament. And it's very interesting, now that you understand that one of the symbols of uh, resources in the Old Testament is the well. Do you remember the story of Hagar and Ishmael? Right? Sarah sent away Hagar and Ishmael into, no, because she didn't want um, them around because Isaac is already born. And what happened was this. They went into the wilderness and they ran out of water. What did God provide for them? Anyone can remember? Anyone can remember? What did God provide for them? Vending machine? No. There were no 7-Elevens. There's no grab food <laughs> in the middle of the desert. God provided them. It says in Scripture that the Lord lifted up the eyes of Hagar, and Hagar saw a well. A well. What does a well symbolize? It symbolizes resource that belongs to a family. So God is in essence telling Hagar that, hey, you may be forsaken by Sarah and Abraham, but to me, you are still family. This is my resource, and I'm sharing with you the symbolism in the Old Testament. Okay, so patriarchal, patrilineal, and number three, patrilocal. So the extended family shared a living space together. If you can see the next slide. Okay, they will build their houses next to each other and the whole purpose, remember, is survival and to keep the resources within the clan. Okay, and the family, extended family, the, the various uh, marriages after they, 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 they get married and all that, they will have their own houses but it's all within the same area and they stay together in this compound in life. And in death, they will all be buried in the family tomb. You have one place of burial, okay? And you don't need to go and purchase it. It's already there. It's called the family tomb. That's why if you look at the archaeological news in, in Israel today, you go and see whenever they discover a tomb, it is never an individual's tomb. It's always a family tomb. Because you live together in life, and you, in, in death, you are buried together. Okay? So, why was Hannah's barrenness so, affected her so much? Okay? And this is a question that we need to understand in order to fully appreciate her story. Okay? In those days, the woman's only link to the economy and to the legal system in society is through the man. Without a man in her life, she had no access to all these things. She becomes a widow, and a widow has no link to any resources. You have no link to the economy, nothing. You have no status. 
Okay? So therefore, for a lot of women in ancient Israel, marriage and motherhood was not just sentimental. I don't marry you simply because I'm in love with you. I marry you because it is a survival issue. And by the way, in ancient Israel, marriage is not a decision of the individual. It's a decision of the whole family because it has to do with resources. It has to do with who am I sharing my resource with because when you, we get married, the resources are combined. And I, res- I am responsible for the other party as well, the other family as well, as much as they are responsible for my family. So in ancient Israel, marriage and motherhood is not just sentimental. It is something like a career track. Everybody wants to be a mother. Everyone wants to be, uh, uh, to be married. Okay? So marriage and motherhood was a big thing for ancient Israelite woman. Okay, and we'll come back to this a little bit. Okay, so Hannah was barren. Let's come back to her story. Hannah was barren, and she was, Bible says she was gravely oppressed by Penina. In fact, the verse that we just read, it says this, that Hannah was provoked grievously by Penina. Penina provoked her grievously to irritate her. And this happened year after year after year. It says this, it went on year after year, and as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Now, there are some things which are lost in translation that we don't get in the English Bible because it's written in Hebrew, the original language, right? In Hebrew, the word provoke, which is cast, okay, it is actually a verb. Now, there's different types of verbs in the Hebrew language, okay? The normal verb is the cow verb, which is like um, provoke for example, okay? But in this particular verse, the verb that is being used is what we call a PL verb, okay? PL has um, certain... It, it has to be read differently. It has to be read with extra intensity. For example, let me give you an example, okay? So if I use it as a normal cow verb, right, I will say, I kill, I kill Pastor Thomas. I kill, okay? It's like... It's very normal English language, right? But if you use a PL verb, I cannot use the word Q. I have to use a word with exaggerated impact. For example, I slaughtered Pastor Thomas. I massacred him. Can, can you get that? The impact is so much different. So when it says that Penina provoked Hannah, it's not just a provoke. It was provoked so intensely towards her that Hannah broke down. The intensity is missing in this text. Okay? So when you read the original Hebrew, you realize that actually it was such an intense thing that Penina was doing towards her. And that's why it affected Hannah so much. She probably talked down to her, spiked her, hey, what's wrong with you? Everyone is getting pregnant. What is wrong with you? Why are you barren? She probably like make fun of her during dinner table. Hey, are you, aren't you going to get your children to come out to have dinner with us? Oh yeah, by the way, I forgot, you have no children. She probably say things like that, right? And that grief, Hannah, deep down, that she has to face this year after year. Okay? Now, let me, sh- let me show you why this affected Hannah so much. Okay? If you look at the next slide, okay? So right now, it says that Benina had children, Hannah had no children, right? So remember, as I mentioned this now, the only link for a woman in ancient Israel to resources is through the men, correct? So right now, Hannah is being provided for by Elkanah, okay? Benina as well, okay? Benina has, let's assume she has children and she has two sons, okay? Because the Bible says she has sons, plural, and daughters. So conservatively, she had two sons, Okay, let's say that. Okay, at this moment, at this juncture, everything looks okay. But what happens the moment Elkanah dies? You look at the next slide. The moment Elkanah dies, Hannah has no one to provide for her. And to make matters worse, remember, they all live in the same place. They share their resources. Who becomes the new patriarch in the family? Penina's eldest son. He's the oldest male in the family, and he becomes 
the one that leads the family. And typical Chinese drama, right? Okay, mother-in-law, okay, in cahoots with the, the, the son, and they take over the whole family, and they will probably do things to Hannah that she can, can't possibly imagine because she has no link to any male in the family. That's probably why it affected her so much because she had no future. She had no status. She had no resources. At best, she'll probably be like a Hagar where she's sent out and she's cut off totally from the whole family, from the resources and everything she needs to survive. That was what she was facing and that's why it bothered her so much. Okay? Now, Hannah's barrenness wasn't the only issue here for her. The Bible also says that it is God who closed Hannah's womb. Okay? It is God who closed Hannah's womb. Now, you must understand the, the concept of uh, barrenness in ancient Israel. Okay? In Deuteronomy 28, right, it says that one of the blessings of obedience is a fruitful womb. Okay, correct place right here. A fruitful womb. Okay, that's one of the blessings of obedience. So if a fruitful womb is a blessing, what is barrenness? It is a curse. So that's how the ancient Israelites thinks. If you are barren, it means that you are either disobedient or you're cursed by God. And she walked around in society. Everyone will look at why this woman is not pregnant yet. Why doesn't she have children? She's probably cursed by God. She's probably disobedient to the law of Moses. And that's a stigma she brought with her. And Hannah's like, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. It is God that closed my womb. What can I do? What can I do? Right? IVF has not been invented yet. I can't do that. Right? And it's not just about the insults of Panina. Ultimately, you ask that question, God, why? Why did you close my womb? It's not fair. Everyone else is okay. Why am I not okay? And the Bible says this, the insults of Panina went on for a long time and possibly it's about 20 years. Okay, 20 years. In fact, some Jewish sources say it, can, it went on until about 40 years. All right? Now, year after year, I have to face something that wasn't my fault. Okay? It says that year after year, Elkanah went up from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Imagine years. Year after year after year, she went to the temple of the Lord and there she had to face the God that did not answer her prayer. Year after year after year, she brings her sacrifices to church and she comes there and this is the God I have to worship, the God that did not answer my prayer. But everybody else's prayer, he answered except mine. This was her situation. Year after year, year after year, 20 years, 40 years. She probably went there. Everybody else the first time she went there, all the pregnant mothers will still have big bellies, right? 20, 30 years passed, all the children that were born became teenagers and adults, and yet she is still barren, and she asked God, why? Why is it my fault? What is wrong with me? So Hannah had a faith crisis. Hannah had a faith crisis. Have you ever gone through something like this? that every week you come into church and you're barren and you, you go around, you see all the kids, the parents holding their kids' hands and you wonder, when will it be my turn? You come to church and then you listen to testimonies on stage about how God healed this person, God healed that person and then there you sit and you ask God, how come it hasn't happened to me yet? What is wrong with me? Day, week after week, you come. And it's been so difficult to be in a sanctuary, hearing all these testimonies, hearing all this preaching about God heals, but it hasn't happened to you yet. How do you live in light of that? 
I remember my own story. Wow, 10.40. Okay? I remember my own story. Uh, the, mom, um, the period where I suffered one of the worst breakups in my life, the week, uh, the, the months that followed was terrible because I was 26 years old. People get married at 26. They don't get breakups. I remember in my cell at that time, they got so many weddings and they keep inviting me to go to the wedding. And every wedding I went to, it's like, God, how come them, not me? And I had to witness them. Worse still, I have to pay Ampau. Okay. <clears throat> sorry, XL members. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Okay, I love you. I bless your marriage. Come to the marriage retreat. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and it was a very, very tough time. I even have a tough time coming to church. Worship was complicated. Because I have to worship a God that did not answer my prayer. I have to worship a God that we sing about, you know, you know, God is great, God is sovereign, but I don't see that in my life. How do I live? And you know what? My reflection over the years is this. You know, whether you're married or single, it's not, it's, there's no difference. Single people envy the married. It's like, wow, they, are, they, got, they got someone to journey through life with all together. Look at their kids. The married people envy the singles. It's like, wow, you got so much time, got no commitment, not to pay and all these things. You know, at the end of the day, I realized this, you know, whether you're barren, you're not barren, whether you're single, you're, 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 you're married, whether you are wealthy, you're not wealthy, whether you have your prayer answered, you don't have prayer answered, you know what? There's no difference because we all still have needs in our lives. We, still, we all still have a path that we need to walk through. And as I was reading Hannah's story, one of the verses that came back to me was the story of Jesus when he received the news about Lazarus being sick. And this is what it says. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, but it is for the glory of God. So I want to say to those of you, that you have not had your prayers answered yet. You know what? We all have our paths to walk. Whether we are barren or we're not barren, we have our paths to walk. It's a path of barrenness. It's a path where you're not barren. You still have to walk that path. The key is this. You walk it for the glory of God and not for yourself. How can I walk such that I can glorify God through my example. So if I'm barren, you know what? I'm going to walk the best walk I can walk so that God gets the glory. If I'm married, if I have children, you know what? I'm going to steward my kids well, my family well. I'm going to do my best so that God gets the glory. There is no difference in the path because ultimately, both paths belong to the Lord. And that's how we should live. Okay? So, Hannah was barren and the future looked bleak. Benina consistently insulted her. Hannah had a crisis of faith because every other year she comes face to face with the God that we held her, her prayer, her answered prayer. Okay? And to make matters worse, Hannah's husband did not understand her struggles. As I mentioned this now, he said this, am I not worth more to you than 10 sons? Obviously, you don't understand women. The son confirmed, never go marriage retreat. So as a result of all these things, Hannah fell into depression. Hannah fell into depression. How do I know that she went to depression? Because it's very likely it was depression, okay? Because verse 7, it says, Hannah wept and would not eat. It's the classic symptoms of depression. She was at that place. I've been to that place before, and I know how dark and terrible that place is. Okay. Let me go to point three, the vow. Okay, three more points and we'll end by 12. <clears throat> Verse nine. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you would indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. That's a Nazarite vow. No razor shall touch his head. 
as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Verse 14, And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless, a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then Hannah, the woman, went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You know, with all the depression that she was facing, the stigma she carried, the insults, I want you to notice what the Bible does not say. The Bible did not say Hannah called up all her buddies and went out for a drinking session to drown her sorrows. It also did not say that Hannah went to the fridge and bring out a, a tub of Ben and Jerry's and lie on the couch and binge watch Netflix all night. It didn't say that. It didn't even say that Hannah went out to party and let loose do whatever I want because I just don't care anymore. Because in the moment of the most depressive uh, moment in your life, there's a high tendency for your flesh to take over and do anything that your flesh wants to do. But Hannah did something right. She went to where God was. She went to the tabernacle. In the moment of her greatest distress, she did not allow her flesh to take over. She ran to God, to the one who withheld what she's asking for. She still ran to Him. There's something beautiful I want to show you, show you here. Okay, if you look at the next slide, where was Hannah when she offered that prayer? Okay? She was actually there, if you can see the round circle there, that was where Eli was sitting, the gate of the tabernacle. Okay, most of the time, women do not enter into the tabernacle. Only men went in to offer the sacrifices. So the only place that Hannah could go was at outside of the tabernacle at the door. And that is where she offered the prayer. And I find this so beautiful because even though God was in the tabernacle, He heard a prayer that was outside of the tabernacle and He answered that prayer. Isn't God amazing? Isn't God such a loving Father? Okay? <clears throat> so, I want to encourage those of you, you that you may think that you're far away from the Lord. You may think that, hey, I'm too sinful. I'm too far away from God's grace and God's mercy and God's love. You know what? Remember the story of Hannah. Because when you cry out to the Lord, He will still hear your cry because He's a good Father. Okay? Now, there's a few significant things that I want to say about Hannah's prayer. Okay, the first one is this. Hannah confessed God's sovereignty when she used the word Lord of hosts. It is the first time in Scripture where the phrase Lord of hosts is being used. It's a confession of God's authority and God's sovereignty over everything. You see, church, the place of revival or awakening always begins when you realize who God is and who you are. And Hannah recognized that. Lord of hosts, Lord over everything. You're sovereign. You own everything. Who am I? Who am I? Okay, so Hannah confessed God's sovereignty. And the second thing that's interesting is this. Hannah's prayer is not just give me a son. Hannah's prayer was this. She made a vow that if you give me the very thing that I wanted my whole life, I will return it back to you. I will return it back to you. You contrast that with the prayers that we pray to God this, these days. You know, God, if my kids do well for PSLE, you know what, God? I will serve you. you know, I will become a car park marshal. God, if you help me clinch that deal, you know, God, you know what? I will tithe regularly to you. You know, God, if I get this job, you know, I will come to church on time. What did Hannah do? Whatever God gave, she returned it back to the Lord. Wow. Can you imagine this? If God bless you with a six-figure bonus at the end of the year, like all of our staff do in Real Life Church, 
just kidding, okay? I always have four digits at the end. No, <laughs> I think more than four digits, okay. Uh, where was I? Okay, anyway, <laughs> can you imagine this? If God bless you with six-figure power bonus, the equivalent is this, I give everything back to the Lord. Can you do that? That is what Hannah did because she recognized that everything belongs to the Lord. And because Hannah gave up everything, the thing that she really wanted, her motherhood, having a son, everything she gave back to the Lord, God could use it not just to bless her, but to bless every subsequent generation in Israel. Okay? Something else which I want you to realize, okay? Now, at the start of the passage we read, right, we're introduced to Eli's family. Okay? Eli the high priest. His family was Hophni, and she had two sons, Hophni and Pinus, and they were looking after the tabernacle. Okay? Hophni means boxer. Okay? He's a violent man. And Phinehas means a black person. So there's a high chance that actually Eli, the very high priest that was supposed to preserve God's law, married a foreign woman, very likely from Egypt. That was Eli. And that's why the whole tabernacle was corrupt. The whole system was corrupt. There was rape. They disregarded the procedures in the tabernacle. They ate the sacrifices. And imagine this. When Hannah made that vow, she jolly well knew who she was going to leave her very precious son with at the end of the day, with these guys. You know, the pulpit team, when we were discussing about this, and we asked ourselves this question, you know, when we read this story, it's like, if God calls you today, you know, like good parents, all of us, we want our kids to go to good school, right? Like Heising Catholic. No. <clears throat> like all the other, the top schools, oh, I go Raffles, I go Hua Chong, I go to... Uh, what other good schools? You know, St. Andrews, Moa, you know, all these all this very high good schools, right? We want our kids to go there. But what if God calls your kids to go to some Ulu place that is full of gangsters, academically very bad teachers are lousy, but God says, I want you to send your son there to be a light. Will you give up your son? And we realized that we couldn't. We said, wow, God, I, I couldn't do that, no. But that was what Hannah did. She gave her best to meet the worst of the tabernacle. And she left it there. Why? Because she recognized, if God gave me, everything belongs to Him. So I have no issue leaving what He gives me with them. Because ultimately, He will take care of Him. And she had no issue with it. It's amazing faith of Hannah. No? And there's something else very interesting about Hannah's vow. You see, Elkanah actually is from the line of Levi. So every single person in the line of Levi is supposed to serve as a Levite. In either the tabernacle or you're sent out into the cities to teach, to preserve God's law in those cities. But as you read scripture, you realize that this guy was not a functioning Levite. He didn't perform any uh, Levitical roles. He was married he had two wives and he was wealthy. Okay? When Hannah gave that vow to the Lord to return her son to the temple, she made something right between her family and God. It's almost like saying that my husband is not doing what he's supposed to do. Therefore, I dedicate my son to the Lord to continue that role. Something was made right that day between Hannah's family and God. And that's why possibly why Eli's word was this, go in peace. Shalom was given that day. Peace between God and men. All is well. Okay, in verse 18. And scripture says that after that, Hannah's countenance changed. Notice this, her situation did not change. She didn't know whether God was going to answer her prayer except for the words of Eli. She didn't know, you know, whether she was going to give birth immediately or like Sarah at 100 years old, near 100 years old. She didn't know what was going to happen, but yet her countenance changed. Why? Because she was in the presence of God. When you run to the presence of God, when you dialogue and be honest with the Lord with how you really feel inside, you know what? God will meet with you. 
Because he's a good father. Your situations may not change. You may not get what you want. But you know what? You get the thing that you really, really need. And that is God himself. And Hannah realized that if I have God, I have everything. That's why she's able her whole countenance changed because her hope is no longer in motherhood. Her hope is no longer in, her identity is no longer in motherhood and in the thing that she wanted. Her identity now is in God, the Lord of hosts, the God that is sovereign over everything. Point four, the fulfillment. And they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah, knew Hannah, his wife. Anybody need me to explain that? No, okay, good. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked from him for the Lord. Okay, I'm going to skip the verses because of time, all right? But in essence, after that, you know, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And in short, she actually dedicated her son after she had weaned him and gave her, she paid her vow at the temple, and she gave her the precious thing, her motherhood, the thing that she's asking for her whole life, she gave it back to God. And Hannah fulfilled her vow. Chapter 2 says that Hannah went on to have three more sons and two daughters. Of course, she didn't know all these things, right? That God was going to give her, but she gave it anyway. And you must remember, during those times, the mortality rate of infants or children was 50%. It means half your children are very likely not to survive in those days. And Jewish tradition has this, that Penina had 10 children and she had to bury eight of them. Jewish tradition. Okay? So Hannah fulfilled her vow. But what Hannah did not realize was the impact of her vow. Point number five. What was the impact of Hannah's actions? Because Hannah gave her son fully dedicated to the temple to serve the Lord all the days of his life. Samuel or Shamuel, the Lord has heard Shamuel, became one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And he was the one that went on to annoy David the king. And David was the one who went on to lead Israel into its most prosperous time, most peaceful time, and it was a big revival that happened during his reign because he turned everyone's eyes back to the Lord. You see, church, you may never know what your faithfulness can do for subsequent generations. You never know the impact of what your actions can do to the people around you. Hannah didn't know. It's only when you read hindsight now, you get to see the impact of a decision. But because she was faithful to return to the Lord what she promised, God used that to bless the generations. Point number six, and I'm ending with this. Still got one more hour. Okay. <clears throat> you know, as I, as I read... As I read this story, right, I was sharing the puppet team. Actually, when I look at Hannah, right, Hannah's story is not one of extraordinary faith, you know. If you look at the story, she's very normal. She reacted how all of us would have reacted. You know, when, when, you, when you are struck with insults, with difficult situations, most of us will be depressed. Most of us would be in a very, very bad place. We will cry, we will weep, we will question God week after week. And that was Hannah's story. So what makes her story so amazing? You see, the hero of Hannah's story is not Hannah. The hero of Hannah's story is a God that is sovereign and faithful. A God that lifts up the lowly those who cannot care for themselves, those who stand outside of the presence of God, He is that God that hears the prayer. He is the God that listens to their cry, that knows what they're going on and says, I will be a father to them. The hero of the story ultimately is God. So because God is sovereign, because God is good, you know what? He deserves our best. And there's nothing too big that we can't give to Him. He deserves everything that we have to offer to Him. 
Maybe some of you, you are here, you're sitting here, and you're like Hannah. Week after week, you come here. You see all the mothers having children, but you're barren. You see all the people that are healthy, but you are struck with cancer. You're struck with sickness. You're struck with mental illness. And you're asking the Lord, why? You're asking the Lord, week after week, God, I'm struggling to worship you because my reality does not match what I sing. My reality does not match my belief. God, how do I live? You know, from Hannah's story, we all have our paths that God has designated for us. The question for you today is this, will you still walk your own path and bring glory to God? Because He's sovereign and He's the one that deserves the glory. Not us, not our comfort, not our our wants, but His glory. So will you choose this day to say, if I have cancer, I'm going to walk this road the best that I know how so that everyone can see and glorify God because of how I walk. If I'm barren, I'm going to walk this road the best that I can so that everyone can see my example and glorify God. And I will be a signpost for every generation to come on how to walk this road so that someone has a guide on how to walk. Will you be that person? You know, I believe for us as Christians, we are like everybody else in the world. We go through difficult times. We go through difficult conditions. But the difference for us as Christians is this, that we have something in us that's unshakable, and that is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And because you have that, you have the strength, you have the ability to walk a road victoriously, even in the midst of barrenness. But the first step to do that is to surrender your rights to the Lord. And say, God, everything I have belongs to you. Everything I have is for your glory. Even my health is for your glory. My barrenness is for your glory. My cancer is for your glory. Teach me, Lord, to accept that, to recognize that you are sovereign and I'm here. I belong to you. I have no right to demand. I have no right to say that this is what you owe me because I belong to you. And teach me what it means to walk this path to glorify your name. So as we sing this song in closing, I want to invite you, those of you who struggle with unanswered prayer, to come before the Lord and say, God, I'm ready to surrender this area of my life of unanswered prayer. And I'm ready to say, God, teach me to walk this road for your glory and not my comfort and not my wants. And as we sing that Jesus is our one thing this day, would you say that, no, God, at the end of the day, the thing that really matters is not so much my health, it's not so much my career or even the, the barrenness or having a child, being a mother, being a father. The thing that matters the most in my life is having you. You are my one thing, God. You are my one thing. So can I invite all of us to rise as we sing this song in closing? Thank you for listening to the River Life Podcast. We hope that you've encountered Jesus through the Word. If you'd like to connect with community or find out more about River Life Church, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or head on over to riverlife.org.sg. God bless and have a great week ahead.